Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hello, hello. Welcome to episode 36 of Criminal Broads, a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. Brought to you by me, Tori Telfer, true crime author, podcast person, non-criminal broad. (laughs) What have you all been up to this fall so far? Tell me. Email me. I have been working on my book about con women, which has lately involved writing to a con woman in jail who set her house on fire with her husband inside it. Um, Not sure if she'll write me back or not. And I've been emailing with people in Scotland about getting court transcripts, which is hard, harder than I thought it would be. Um, I don't know if it's just me, but I've found it very humbling to work on cases in other countries because the court systems are so difficult. And I barely know how to navigate the court systems here in the U.S. They are complicated, to say the least. Uh, So, you know, slap me on a website of a court system across the Atlantic and I get lost very easily. I remember once I was interviewing a British lawyer and casually asking him questions and I said, uh, did she take a plea deal? And he was like, we don't have those here. And I was like, oh, I didn't even think to ask myself whether or not you had plea deals there. So if any of you have a PhD in legal systems across the globe, please email me and be my best friend and send me your dissertation and I will give you a shout out on the podcast. Speaking of cases in other countries and speaking of PhDs, um... Today, we are leaving the U.S. and looking at a case in the vibrant and massive country of Brazil. See, I was feeling like this podcast has been a little too positive lately. I mean, look at us. Last episode, we talked about a woman whose case inspired a lot of amazing activism. Before that, I interviewed an author who's examining true crime with a keen, fresh eye. Before that, we heard from an incredibly strong woman who survived Ted Bundy. That's three fairly positive stories in a row. Where are all the female psychopaths? Am I right? I'm right. So today, we're going dark. Very dark. Now... I can find empathy for a lot of criminals, a lot of cases. I think a lot of most cases are more complex than we realize. Human behavior is almost never black and white. So, you know, um, a lot of times I end up empathizing with a lot of people in these stories. But I'm just going to say this case is pretty much terrible. This criminal broad is a real bad one. And I don't think I have any empathy for her, but maybe that's just me being a psychopath. Let me know what you think after you hear it. Um, I had some help with this case, some amazing help. A few months ago, I heard from a Brazilian listener named Luis Alberto Mora, who is currently getting his PhD in Portugal and who has a master's degree that focuses on pop culture and serial killers. Are you jealous? Because I'm jealous. We all need Luis to give us a lecture on pop culture and serial killers so we can learn from his wisdom. Uh, Anyway, he told me about some very famous Brazilian cases, and he recommended today's case to me. And he helped me with the research. He helped me find sources in Portuguese, and he fact-checked for me and gave me details that I wouldn't have known otherwise. So, Luis, thank you so much. I'm dedicating this episode to you. You're amazing. Um, If any of you would like to read some of Luis's academic work, I'm going to link to his work on academia.edu in the show notes. Okay, 
Let's get into the case. We are traveling back to the early 2000s, and we are going to end up on the spookiest night of the year. Halloween night, 2002, after midnight. A teenage girl is trying to sneak her boyfriend into her parents' mansion. This could have been a scene from a romantic teen movie. The girl is blonde, beautiful, and rich. The boy is from the other side of the tracks. He's a bit rougher around the edges. Her parents don't approve of him at all. So the two make plans to meet up in secret. On Halloween, they go to a cafe and drive around for a bit, and eventually they head to her house. She unlocks the door, and he sneaks inside. He sneaks inside, and he creeps up the stairs, and he pushes open the door to her parents' bedroom. Her parents lay in bed, asleep. They have no idea what's about to happen. The boy is holding an iron bar. He's wearing gloves, and he has a nylon stocking over his hair so that he doesn't leave a speck of DNA. He's got another man with him, a much bigger man, his older brother, who's also carrying an iron bar. The girl has gone into the library to wait. Turns out this is no romantic teen movie, not at all. In her mind, the romantic teen movie part is going to start once this part is all over. She isn't scared. She's planned the whole thing. She knows exactly what's about to happen in her parents' room. The girl... Suzanne von Richthofen was born into the privileged world of upper-middle-class Brazilian society. Her father was German, a successful engineer named Manfred, and her mother, Maricia, was a distinguished Brazilian psychiatrist. The family was related distantly to the German pilot Manfred von Richthofen, who flew in World War I as the Red Baron. Suzanne and her younger brother Andreas were given the best of the best when it came to education. By the time Suzanne was 18, she was already studying law, and she could speak three languages. For the von Richthofens, education would always trump entertainment. Neighbors knew them as a discreet family, not exactly the type to throw parties. They were an intellectual clan, a serious one. The type of family that's supposed to produce good boys and good girls— Little Andreas had the sort of hobby you might expect from a good boy. He loved model planes. One day, he met another model plane aficionado, a boy named Daniel Cravinos, who was everything Andreas was not. Older, wilder, a drug user, and a poor boy. Suzanne noticed that her little brother had made this cool new acquaintance, and her ears perked up. 
She and Daniel started talking. Before long, they were dating. He gave her drugs and took her virginity. He was six years older than her, which was exciting. She'd sneak off to his house without her parents knowing. And Daniel loved that Suzanne was this poor little rich girl with a wild side and access to a lot of money. He thought of her as his golden goose, his ticket to a better life. As their teenage romance was unfolding with all the impetuosity and drama of, well, a teenage romance, Suzanne's parents initially decided to ignore it. They didn't approve, but they figured that the whole thing would blow over and they'd have their good girl back. But the relationship didn't blow over. Suzanne and Daniel kept dating, and Suzanne kept changing right underneath their noses. She was smoking weed, huffing paint thinner and glue, dropping ecstasy. She was lavishing her new boyfriend with gifts and cash, and the guy was clearly obsessed with her, like scary obsessed with her. Finally, Maricia and Manfred decided that enough was enough. In May of 2002, they told Suzanne that she was banned from dating Daniel. This relationship was just not okay with them. In response, Suzanne decided that this stance was just not okay with her. people tended to notice about Suzanne was that she was a very cold person, emotionless, completely dry-eyed, the kind of person who could go from, oh, really, to I hate you and want you dead in about 2.5 seconds. After her parents forbade her from dating Daniel, she not only kept dating Daniel, but she started talking to Daniel about how her life would be so much better if her parents would just not be alive anymore. She talked about sabotaging the brakes in their car. She talked about setting their mansion on fire. If she did it, not that she was planning to do it, but if she did it, she'd get her inheritance a little bit early, and wouldn't that be great? According to Daniel's mother, Suzanne was masterful when it came to manipulating her boyfriend. The mother later said that Suzanne made Daniel, quote, one of her instruments. Gradually, the talk turned into action, and the two of them came up with their master plan. Suzanne was the one who took care of the details. She picked out the iron bars. She told Daniel to wear a nylon stocking over his head so that his hair wouldn't be found anywhere on the crime scene, and she gave him the gloves, gloves from a stash that belonged to her own mother, the psychiatrist. On Halloween night, Suzanne and Daniel picked up 15-year-old Andreas from home at 10.30 p.m., Andreas wasn't allowed to leave the house that late, so he stuffed pillows under his bedsheet to make it seem like he was still in bed. The couple took him to an internet cafe and dropped him off. Then they went to pick up Daniel's brother. His name was Christian, and he had agreed to help them in exchange for a hefty fee. Christian was older, taller, bigger, and scarier than Daniel, a motorcycle driver with a tattoo of a raging dragon on his chest. Around midnight, the threesome pulled into the von Richthofen garage. They had been smoking weed, huffing paint thinner and glue. They were feeling good. Suzanne unlocked the front door. 
She crept upstairs to make sure her parents were asleep. They were. The brothers entered the house behind her, clutching their iron bars. She told them that the coast was clear, and she went into the library to wait it out. While she was in there, she threw papers around the room to make it look like the mansion had been invaded by robbers. The two brothers walked quietly into the von Richthofen bedroom and stood on either side of the bed. Daniel loomed above Manfred, while Christian took his place near Maricia. Now, Christian was the older brother, the stronger brother, but when he looked down at Suzanne's parents, sleeping peacefully in their own home, he started crying. He looked over at his little brother and shook his head. He didn't want to do it. At that, Daniel got angry. He was in. He was all in, and so if his brother wouldn't start the mayhem, then he would. He raised his iron bar and brought it crashing down on Manfred's head. Christian, not knowing what else he could do, copied his little brother and brought his own bar down on Maricia. She woke up just enough to fling up her hand in a half-conscious attempt to protect herself. Later, during her autopsy, experts would find fractures in her fingers. The two boys beat Suzanne's parents until they thought it was all over, but then they realized that Maricia was making a sound. It sounded like she was snoring, and that terrified them. She wasn't snoring. The sound she was making was a death rattle. But the brothers thought it meant that she was still alive, that she might actually make it, and so they shoved a towel into her mouth, tied a garbage bag over her head, and strangled her until the sounds finally stopped. By that point, Suzanne was in the room. The poor little rich girl had been the picture of cold-blooded practicality during the whole thing. She had everything all figured out. She came into the room with plastic bags for the brother's blood-stained clothes. She took a knife and slit open one of her father's briefcases, which was filled with cash, and she grabbed some of the cash and some of her mom's jewelry to make the scene look even more like a robbery. The three of them scattered other jewelry around the bedroom and put a gun that they'd found next to Manfred's body. Christian was still extremely upset, but Suzanne told him to snap out of it. Calm down, Chris, she said. Be cool. You didn't take anything from me. You gave me a new life. In exchange for his role in the crime, in exchange for murdering her mother, she gave him a hefty pile of cash. Then, Suzanne and Daniel got back in the car, dropped Christian off at his apartment, and then checked into a motel for a couple of hours. They asked for the presidential suite, and they ordered Coca-Colas. After staying long enough to establish what they thought was an alibi, they picked up little Andreas, who'd just been killing time at the cafe as his parents were being beaten to death. Suzanne then dropped Daniel off at his apartment, and, in the bleary early morning hours, she took her little brother home. (laughs) 
Suzanne put on a good show returning home that night. Wow, the the doors are open. That's weird. I wonder what's going on. Andreas was really scared by the unlocked doors, and he went into the house calling for his parents. Suzanne gave him a kitchen knife and told him to wait outside. Then she called Daniel, and Daniel called the police. The police arrived expecting a robbery, but what they found was a murder scene that had clearly been designed to look like a robbery. The house was too neat. Most of the mayhem had been confined to a single room. The jewelry scattered around the room was weird. Why hadn't the robbers just taken it all? Why had they left a gun lying beside one of their victims? Outside of the house, one officer was gently telling Suzanne and Andreas that their parents had been beaten to death. He was surprised by Suzanne's reaction to this horrible news. She didn't seem sad or shocked or confused or despairing. Instead, she immediately asked him two questions. First, she asked if she could sell her parents' car. Then, she asked if she and her boyfriend could go to the beach while the investigation was happening. Strange, the police officer thought. This clearly wasn't a random crime, some botched robbery motivated by poverty and desperation. This was the crime of someone close to the family. Someone who was very possibly standing right in front of him, twirling her long blonde hair and acting totally unmoved. As the police began looking into the crime, a funeral was held for the von Richthofen parents. If Suzanne had been suspiciously calm upon finding out that her parents were dead, she was now suspiciously uncalm. At the funeral, she cried and shouted and shrieked and made sure that everyone watching saw that she was really, really sad. And she did all this wearing a very odd outfit, a pair of really low-cut pants and a black crop top with a sweater draped over her shoulders. It was a sort of outfit Christina Aguilera might wear in a music video, other than the fact that it was all black. It was attention-grabbing, a bit performative, just like her crying. Across town, at the exact time that the funeral was taking place, Christian was buying himself a brand new motorcycle with 36 crisp $100 bills. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Okay, I'm really excited about this first sponsor because it's jewelry. Ah! But not just any jewelry. Jewelry that supports female survivors. Are you feeling this? Okay, Proverb is a jewelry company that believes every life story deserves to be told with grace and power. Their jewelry is delicate, it's hip, it's beautiful. But better than that, when you purchase from them, 10% of proceeds go towards bringing women who have survived sexual abuse to this gorgeous healing retreat in the mountains of Utah. So you get to help survivors and wear an amazing new bracelet at the same time. I really like their engraved bracelets, which say things like, be good, do good, or brave hearted, or my favorite, bold woman. They're 24 karat matte gold and they're usually $35. 
But because I love you, I got you a code for 30% off. Just go to liveproverb.com and enter the code BROADS. That's L-I-V-E-P-R-O-V-E-R-B.com and code BROADS for 30% off your jewelry. Our next sponsor is The Great Courses Plus. Have you ever wondered why humans can be so evil? Why are we drawn to gape at horrible things? And why do some of us actually do those horrible things? What is wrong with humanity? (laughs) With a subscription to The Great Courses Plus, you can get your questions answered by listening to audio and video lecture series like Understanding the Dark Side of Human Nature, a course that explores the unpleasant facets of human nature across the centuries. Don't want to think about evil today? That's totally fine. The Great Courses Plus has thousands of lectures on everything from Jack the Ripper, oops, that's also evil, to positive things like how to meditate or how the solar system was formed. For a free month of lectures that you can listen to or watch on your phone or computer, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash broads and enter code FREEMO. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash broads and enter code FREEMO as in free month. And last but not least, let's hear it for the podcast, Nevertheless, She Existed, a podcast bringing forgotten stories of women's history into the limelight. Here's a little clip of what you can expect when you listen to it on your favorite podcast app. Hello, cruel world. I am Molly Gaby. And I am Kylie Holloway. And we're the hosts of Nevertheless, She Existed podcast. We're starting a new podcast, and we want to tell you a little bit about it. So what are we doing here with this new podcast? Oh, I don't know, Kylie. Just writing the wrongs of hundreds of years of forgotten women's history, that's all. Kind of a lofty goal for a podcast. Yes, but remember, Rome wasn't built in a year. Mm -hmm. But I bet it could have been if women were in charge of building the damn thing. As Suzanne shrieked and moaned over her parents' graves, police were looking into the dynamics of the von Richthofen family. It wasn't long before they found out that the parents hadn't approved of Suzanne's relationship with Daniel. Bingo. That was a potential motive. Now they just needed a confession. The first to confess was Christian, the big, scary, tattooed older brother who was the only one to show any emotion during the murders. When the police found out about his shiny new motorcycle, purchased in cash, they brought him in to be interrogated and he crumbled quickly. He told police that Suzanne's parents had been murdered because Suzanne thought it was the only way for her and Daniel to stay together. When Daniel and Suzanne heard that Christian had confessed, they crumbled and confessed too. In photos of the three of them, lined up and handcuffed, the brothers look miserable, and Suzanne hides her face completely behind her long blonde hair. It wasn't until the middle of 2006, thanks to Brazil's slow legal system, that the three young people went on trial for the double homicide. The trial was so massively popular that the website for the courthouse crashed multiple times as people tried to fill out forms online to get one of 80 public seats. Suzanne's lawyer explained that the interest was, in part, due to the class issues at stake in the trial. 
Half of Brazil was living on less than $2 a day. And here was a murderess who came from a house with a library in it, a house with briefcases full of cash, and all that hadn't been enough for her. The case baffled Brazilians. They couldn't understand it. They were dying to understand it. They were intrigued by Suzanne. They hated Suzanne. At one point, when Suzanne was transferred from prison back to her own house to be put under house arrest, she was greeted by an angry crowd throwing rocks. In the courtroom, everyone had a different version of what had happened on Halloween night. At first, Christian backed away from his earlier confession and blamed the whole thing on Daniel, saying that he had only confessed because he thought it might help his younger brother get a lesser sentence. He said that he'd been in the bedroom but actually hadn't been able to lift the iron bar and kill anyone, so Daniel committed both of the murders. At one point, Daniel actually confirmed this version of the story, perhaps trying to protect his older brother. Suzanne blamed the whole thing on the brothers and said that she had nothing to do with the crime, at least not intentionally. She admitted that she had let Daniel into the house that night, but that was only because he would have left her if she'd refused. She told the courtroom that she, quote, couldn't resist his spell. He was like a god to me. She told jurors that she had been scared and confused that night because she didn't know what was happening. And she told them that Daniel had led her astray in the first place by taking her virginity and giving her weed to smoke. In contrast, Daniel blamed the whole thing on Suzanne, saying that she'd used him as an instrument to achieve her own nefarious goals. He said that she wanted her inheritance badly, that she had wanted to kill her parents for a long time, that she'd already dabbled in drugs before he met her, and so on and so forth. He even claimed that her father had tried to sexually abuse her, although Suzanne denied this. The lovers may have been in agreement before the crime happened, but once the law got involved, they split apart, contradicting each other. At the trial, it was every killer for him or herself. The coldness that police had noticed in Suzanne earlier was on full display during the trial. She handled the whole thing like a real psychopath. At one point, lawyers read love letters between Suzanne and Daniel, and Daniel grew so emotional upon hearing them that he had to be taken out of the courtroom but Suzanne just listened, completely unmoved. Outside of the courtroom, she and her lawyer were caught whispering on camera. Her lawyer was telling her to cry, and Suzanne responded, I can't do that. Inside the courtroom, onlookers were shocked when, at several points, Suzanne actually laughed during the proceedings. The personification of an evil blonde, the prosecution called her. One of the jurors said, My impression is that she was a cold person. She felt nothing. One of the detectives who worked on the case described her as cold, impetuous, heartless, and with a lot of anger towards her parents. In contrast to Suzanne's psychopathic ice queen image, Daniel and Christian cried multiple times in the courtroom. When Christian finally confessed that, yes, he actually had murdered Maricia, he did so holding hands with the prosecutor and weeping in front of the jury. 
On the last day of the trial, one of the prosecutors began shouting at Daniel about how loathsome his actions were, beating someone to death and then checking into a love motel and demanding the presidential suite. At that, Daniel started crying and his older brother hugged him. But other than her performative weeping and wailing at her parents' funeral, Suzanne's eyes were dry. Each of the three was found guilty of double homicide. One of the prosecutors called it the most atrocious and cruel crime I have ever seen in my 26 years as a prosecutor, saying that Suzanne had been driven by a desire to gain independence without actually working for it. Each of the criminals was given a sentence of about 40 years in prison, 38 years and six months for Christian, and 39 years and six months for the lovers. And what happened to those lovers after the trial? What happened to that love that was so powerful, so beautiful, so once in a lifetime that two people had to be bludgeoned to death just to allow it to exist? In the courtroom, the love story of Daniel and Suzanne had pretty much been revealed to be a soulless, toxic, immature wasteland And once they were packed off to their respective prisons, their connection was officially severed. As the years passed, both of them got married in jail to other people. In 2014, Suzanne married another female inmate, Sandra Gomez, who was in jail for helping her boyfriend kidnap and kill a 14-year-old. Like Daniel, Sandra was a poor kid whose world seemed light years away from Suzanne's privileged one. Clearly, Suzanne had a type. That same year, Daniel married a woman on the outside. He met her when she came to jail to visit her brother, and her brother just happened to be Daniel's cellmate. This woman described meeting Daniel as a wonderful surprise. She lost her job when her employers found out that she'd married a murderer. Today, everyone involved in the crime is still in prison. Christian was released on parole in 2017, But he was then caught carrying ammunition, and then he tried to bribe the police officers who caught him so that they wouldn't take him back to prison. Anyway, he's back in prison. That same year, Suzanne's little brother, Andreas, was hospitalized after breaking into a home and sleeping in the backyard. Life had been extremely hard on Andreas in the years since his parents' murder. He was still the smart young good boy he'd been at 15. He got a doctorate in chemistry, but he was paranoid and disturbed and unmedicated, sure that someone was trying to kill him. When he arrived at the hospital, his eyes were glazed, and he told the doctors that he'd broken into the house on order of the emperor. Daniel and Suzanne are still in prison, of course, but both of them are allowed temporary leaves for good behavior. Suzanne has been given two personality exams in prison, and each one of them has concluded that she is a narcissist of the highest degree. The exams declared that she is highly self-centered, extraordinarily childish, emotionally uncontrolled, and manipulative. They said that she was someone who hid her aggression well, but who wanted total control. 
And, most cynically, the exams showed that Suzanne feels no guilt whatsoever about her crimes. Rumor has it that Suzanne has seduced both a prosecutor and a doctor while in prison in order to get special treatment. The prosecutor would apparently set up his office as though it were a nightclub with lighting, music, and special snacks for Suzanne. The doctor would bring her pastries and was allegedly very protective of her. If these stories are true, it's not all that surprising. A psychopath always knows how to game the system. Today, Suzanne's hair is red, not blonde. On Twitter, Brazilians mock her, photoshopping her face onto pictures from the show Orange is the New Black. There are two films about her coming out in 2020. She is famous, but alone. She doesn't get any visitors in jail. And every year, thanks to the terms of her temporary leave, she gets released on specific holidays. One of them is Mother's Day. Another is Father's Day. Every year, on those days, Suzanne gets to walk the streets of her city, remorseless, cold, thinking only of herself. All right. Thank you all for listening. What do you think of Suzanne's story? You probably want to be her friend, right? You want to have her over for dinner? She seems really nice. Um, you know what kills me? Andreas. Oh, my God. Poor, poor guy. I mean, talk about just someone whose life was shattered at 15 years old. It just it just breaks my heart. Oh, and a detail. Oh, man, I should I should put this on Patreon for for my patrons, but I'm going to share it with everyone. A detail I forgot to include in the podcast is that when he was um, when he was captured after breaking into that house, he had a medallion on him, like a family medallion, a medallion for the von Richthofen family. It was like he's clinging to this noble past or something. It just it's this weird gold engraved thing. I'll put a picture of it up on Patreon. Just so sad. Um, anyway, thank you for listening. New York listeners, please grab your tickets to the Criminal Broads and Podcast Dialogue event that's happening on October 30th. We're going to be talking about female cult leaders at Caveat NYC. I'll link to the tickets in the show notes. And I have some patrons to thank. Um, the patrons that have made this episode possible are Lena Bass, The Amazing, and Wrenchwench, who I thanked a couple episodes ago, but this broad has increased their pledge. So thank you a second time to Wrenchwench. Um, for the rest of you, if you'd like to support the podcast and get behind-the-scenes details from all of these cases, well, they're not really behind-the-scenes details, but they're cases that I didn't put in the full episode, um, go to patreon.com slash criminal rots. For example, I'm going to link to a video that shows the moment when Suzanne's lawyer said cry. And she said in Portuguese, I can't do that because I'm a psychopath. <laughs> so patreon.com slash criminal if you are into that kind of extra material. Um, other than that, you know the drill. Rating and reviewing the podcast is always appreciated. Telling your friends is amazing. 
and want to see pictures of Suzanne and Daniel and Christian and the whole family, uh, go to Instagram.com slash criminal broads. And I think that's it. Thank you for your support of my announcement, my big slash little baby announcement on the last podcast is really great to hear from so many of you and um yeah this is the second to last podcast before I go on maternity leave and I'm going to be leaving you with a story let's say a classic story someone rather famous someone a lot of you have been asking me to do but not so famous that you'll be like oh I know every detail about this so um i'll be back in two weeks with that spooky story it's possibly even darker than this one if you can believe it but we are in halloween time and until then uh stay safe uh be good do good and i love you all so much thank you for listening i'll talk to you later bye maybe i'm right maybe i'm wrong loving you dear like i do if it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.